If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 55? Isaiah 55, as we continue our walk through this book, and this chapter is the end of the second major section um, of Isaiah. Uh, Last week we said that uh, we spoke of a river. We said there's a, a river of blessings that flows from the work of Jesus that's described in Isaiah 53, and that Isaiah 54 and 55 are helping us understand what those blessings are. Uh, The waters of peace in some ways are of peace and and shalom with God. They are dammed up by our sin. But the suffering of the servant lets them loose so that they're able to flood into our lives. And as they arrive, we see in chapter 54 that the barren are made fruitful the ashamed are redeemed, the sinful are saved, and the storm-tossed are eternally secure. This, says verse 17, is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. It is the inheritance that we have received through the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether we've experienced it personally or not, we all know about wills and inheritances Uh, An individual dies and their possessions are passed on to those who are still alive, and that's usually done through some sort of a will. Sometimes, usually only in the movies, um, there's a stipulation or there's a condition of some kind in a will. In other words, in order for a person to receive their inheritance, they they have to do something. I read about a romantic comedy that I never have seen Uh, where a man can only receive the millions of dollars that he's set to inherit if he gets married before he turns 30 years old. There's the stipulation on the will. Um, Maybe more familiar to us than wills would be uh, promotional offers where there are conditions. So you can get a free Chick-fil-A sandwich, but you have to dress up like a cow. Uh, Or you can get, um, you could win $10,000, but you have to make a half-court shot in front of all of UofL's fans that have stayed in their seats during halftime, something like that. So here's the question that we come to chapter 55 with. Are there conditions on the inheritance that we're invited to receive from the Lord through the suffering of the servant? Do we have to do something to come to the river? Could all of these blessings really be free? Or is there a catch, right? There's got to be a catch. There's got to be some fine print to us receiving all these blessings from Christ. What's the fine print? Well, there's actually two commands that, that set out Isaiah 55. One's in, in verse 1 and one's in verse 6. And they help us to continue to see the blessings that flow from the cross of Jesus. But they also spell out the, the conditions, you might say, for receiving the inheritance. These two commands tell us what we have to to do to experience the peace of God flowing through our lives for all eternity. They are the the conditions of our inheritance. But don't be too worried because in the simplest form, these two commands are come and seek. In the form of a big idea for today, the commands are this. Come and enjoy the feast purchased by the servant and seek the Lord while he may be found. Come and enjoy the feast. Come enjoy the feast purchased by the servant. And the second command, and seek the Lord while he may be found. Friends, brothers and sisters, this chapter is the gospel invitation 
to faith and repentance in all of its beauty. It's a description of everything that is offered to us in our, as an inheritance by Jesus through his death. It's a vision of the river of God's blessings that beckons us to come and to, to swim and to find all the joy that we could ever imagine. And it's a reminder that knowing our need and knowing that Jesus alone can meet our need is the only condition for receiving this inheritance. At their core, these two commands here are the same ones that Jesus began his ministry with. They are the call to repent and to believe. But if those words maybe have become stale to you or they fail to awaken in you the beauty of what, of what Christ has done and what he's inviting us into, then God's word says with these beautiful pictures, it says, come, come and enjoy the feast that has been purchased by the servant and seek the Lord while he may be found. The chapter is easiest to understand in two parts based on these commands, verses 1 through 5 and then verses 6 through 13. And so let's begin by just reading verses 1 through 5. Isaiah chapter 55, God's word says to us, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no more money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. The first command then, the first condition, if you want to say it that way, is come and enjoy the feast. Do you want to receive all the blessings that are offered us in Christ? Come and enjoy the feast. Uh, the invitation occurs uh, four times in verse four. Did you see that? Four times the word come shows up there. It, it goes out to all who are thirsty. It goes to, out to everyone who is in need, to all who are unsatisfied with life as it is, who have tasted all that the world has to offer, but have found that it just made them more thirsty. To everyone who has sought redemption, but failed to find it. It goes out to Israel, Israel, who had gone after all the idols of Babylon and all the idols of every other nation, and it goes out to we who have gone after all of the idols of our own day. And unlike all of those idols who ask for us to give them our time and our money and our lives to gain their benefits, the Lord says that this feast, this life-giving water, this wine and milk will cost us nothing. Which is good because we don't have anything to give. <laughs> we don't have anything to offer. It's a meal that costs us nothing, and it gives us everything that we desire. Doesn't it, it feels like this invitation that's virtually impossible to turn down. It's like when I was in college and they offered free food. Yes, the answer is always yes. I don't even care what it is. It's an invitation I would not turn down. And yet, verse two tells us that in our sin, and pride, rather than come to the feast, we choose to spend money on things that do not satisfy our hunger and our thirst. We labor and we try to earn our way to blessing. 
Jeremiah says it in a similar way in his prophecy. He says that the Lord is a fountain of living water, but instead of going and drinking from him, we have dug out cisterns that are broken at the bottom that can't hold any water, and we choose to drink from them instead. It's a reminder that sin is self-destructive. Sin is, is refusing to eat a feast that costs us nothing and will satisfy longings we don't even know, know that we have, and choosing instead to spend our lives to purchase food that really isn't food at all. And so much of this flows from our unwillingness to listen. Remember, Isaiah over and over again has been calling us to listen, to hear to listen to the word that the Lord is speaking, to believe and trust that God alone in Christ can satisfy the deepest longings of our souls, that he alone can bring redemption to us, that he alone can bring reconciliation in life. And again, here, we're called to listen, to listen and believe that God alone can cleanse us from our sin and fill us with everlasting joy. In the end, the invitation to come to the feast, according to verse three, is actually an invitation to come to God in Christ. Incline your ear and come to me, it says. Jesus and his words of life, they are the feast. John 6, of course, comes to mind when, when he spoke in, in, to those in John 6 who had eaten the miraculous feast of bread and fish the day before and wanted him to give them more food. He made it clear that they had totally missed the point, that he wasn't a free meal ticket that he himself was the meal that the previous day's meal was pointing to. John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He goes on to, to shockingly reveal that he will give up his life. He will give his flesh and his blood to give us life, and it's his words that are spirit, and his words that are eternal life. And he calls us then to say with Peter, where else are we going to go, Lord? Where else would we, would we be satisfied? Where else would we have our thirst quenched? Where else would we be filled? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus alone can satisfy us. Uh, our chapter, uh, one chapter later in John 7, Jesus stands up on the last day of the Feast of Booths and he boldly announces, he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John then comments, now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And, and these words surely are speaking about, about the new covenant. And remember back in, in chapter 54, it was made clear that the work of the servant is fulfilling all of the former covenants, those with Abraham, with, with Noah, the covenant at Sinai. And here in verse three, the covenant with David is brought out. The everlasting covenant that God made with David would be fulfilled as Jesus, the greater David, descended from the line of David, would reign as the greater king, the king over death itself. Here, writes Barry Webb, is the final climax of the whole movement of these two chapters with their review of the various covenants. The final covenant between God and his people will not cancel out the earlier covenants, but fulfill them perfectly and completely. The final outcome of the work of the servant will be the full realization of all that God has promised from the beginning. All the promises of God will find their yes and amen in him. 
And this new covenant means that, verse 5, the nations will come streaming into the new Jerusalem to join in on the feast without cost. The world is invited to come and to drink and to eat and to be eternally satisfied in Jesus, to receive his spirit that overflows in us like a never-ending stream. Before we move on to the next command, though, in verses 6 through 13, I want to be careful to say that the meal is not free. There is a price that has to be paid for this meal. And there are conditions and stipulations of the covenant that bring it to us. But the good news is that Jesus, in his life and death and resurrection, has met all of the conditions and he has paid for all of the gifts that are now offered to us. The feast is free, but not because it is of no value, like something that you pull out of the basement and set on your curb. Rather, it's free to us because it's been purchased. It's been purchased at infinite cost by Jesus. Our eldest is starting to receive mail from colleges and universities, which means that we've started to dip our toe into the world of choosing a, a college, and we've uh, inevitably talked about cost. <laughs> it's an important factor, right? Uh, I was telling Elaine the other day that I didn't pay for my college tuition when I went to Moody Bible Institute. But as any Moody graduate will tell you, it's made very, very clear that Moody is not free. It's just that donors have paid the cost for the students who attend. It's not a tuition-free school. It's a tuition-paid school. And in a similar way, the feast is not free. It was simply paid for by someone else. If the feast were invited to is free, it's because it was purchased by Jesus through his suffering and through his death. Remember, all of the blessings of the new covenant flow from the suffering of the servant in chapter 53. And this feast is no different. It's purchased for us by Christ and offered to all who will simply come to the table, who will turn from spending money on things that are not food, spending money on things that don't satisfy, and turn to trust that God has given us all we could ever need or want in himself like hungry children who have been playing outside all day and are called to the dinner table, all we have to do is pull up a chair, the chair of repentance and faith, and the feast is ours. Kids, do you have to pay for dinner when it's dinner time? No, hopefully not. If you do, well, that's interesting. <laughs> Talk to me later. Um, no, we don't, because it's been paid for by someone else. I could probably quote every line from Come Ye Sinners to prove this point, but the one that stuck out to me is, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. So friends, brothers, and sisters, stop buying food that can't satisfy you with money that you don't have. Come enjoy the feast purchased by the suffering servant. Along those same lines, verses 6 through 13 tell us, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord is the simple command. Let's read those verses, Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 6 to the end of the chapter. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon, upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy, be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The invitation to come, I think, is more focused on faith. And if that's true, then the call to seek the Lord may emphasize the other side of that coin, which is repentance. Uh, Do you feel the sense of a threat, maybe, in verse 6? It sets a condition of time on seeking the Lord. There's a, a sense of urgency. The Lord has to be sought now because there is a time coming when for all of our searching, he will not be found. And we need, we need to call on him now while he is near or else there will be a time when he is not near and he will not hear us. Jesus seems to pick up on this in his parables, this, this sense of urgency. You think about things like uh, the 10 virgins where some are ready for the bridegroom's arrival, but then there's others who are not and then they're shut out of his presence. Or you can think about the one talent man who wasn't ready for his master's return and was cast away. The time to seek the Lord is now. Why? Because the Lord can be found now. The Lord is gracious now. Verse seven spells out just what seeking the Lord looks like and it looks like turning from wickedness and returning to the Lord. And the promise is that if we return, what are we gonna be met with? We're gonna be met with compassion and with abundant pardon. Remember how this section began back in chapter 40? The call for Isaiah to comfort his people with the words of truth. And here we find that that comfort and compassion, the comfort and compassion we need is ours when we will turn from wickedness and return to the Lord. If you have not sought salvation in the Lord, Isaiah says the time is now. Now is the day of salvation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Turning from wickedness to Christ now means that you will be met with compassion, with pardon, with redemption. But to wait, to wait means that it could be too late and that you'll be met instead with wrath and with judgment. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Found to be compassionate. It would seem then that verses 8 through 13 bring all of this to a close. And by all of this, I think I mean chapters 40 through 55. The more I meditate on this, the more it seems that the Lord's glorious ways of salvation through the suffering of the servant are are described here. And they're described as something that will never be fully understood, that will never fail, and that will never end. Verses eight through nine tell us that that his ways will never be fully understood. 
Verses 10 through 11 tell us that his ways will never fail. And verses 12 through 13 talk about how what he does, the greatness of his salvation will never end. If you read these verses, there's, there's so much we could say. We could do a sermon on each couplet if we, if we wanted to. So many applications, so many wonders to mind. So I would encourage you to keep meditating on them. I'd encourage you to compare them with chapters 40 and 41. I think chapters 54 and 55 are bookended with chapters 40 and 41 to compare these two things and see what the Lord's doing is, is amazing. But for now, this afternoon, I just want us to think through the, th the flow of verses 8 through 13 as a sort of summation of everything that's going on. And the flow, if you want to get a picture in your mind, the flow is like the rain coming from heaven and watering the earth and then bringing fruitfulness and life. Maybe you can have that picture in your mind, not hard on a day like today where we've seen a lot of rain, but you can picture God sending rain and then it sort of scattering over the face of the earth and then vegetation and life springing forth because of that rain. Isaiah has made it clear that the, the way the Lord will bring his promised salvation is through the suffering, death, and resurrection of the promised servant. And that all the nations are invited to come and to swim in the river of blessings and to feast at the table that he has purchased when they come to him in repentance and faith. And then he acknowledges, it seems, in verses 8 and 9, that none of this makes any sense to our natural minds. That, that this is not how we would expect salvation to happen. In part, the reason that we reject the feast and the reason we stay in our wicked ways is because our worldly reasoning says that this is not the way for redemption. This is not how it happens. But God's ways are not our ways. Remember that back at the beginning of the section, it was Cyrus who was going to be Israel's savior. It was Cyrus who was said, to be the Lord's anointed. And this made no sense to Israel. How could Cyrus, how could Cyrus, a pagan king, be the one that God, God's going to use to deliver us from exile? But then again, none of the, what the Lord was doing made any sense to them. And God's ways in salvation and beyond often don't make sense to us. Let's be honest. They don't make sense because they often involve pain and suffering and death. They involve the breaking of our hearts. They involve the shattering of our dreams so that God can give us new hearts and new dreams or maybe just so that we would long for heaven and for him. But the natural mind doesn't comprehend the mind of the Lord. His, his ways are higher. His ways are more intricate than the heavens above and they go against all of our natural inclinations. It doesn't make sense. But while we know that his, his ways will never be fully understood, we also know that they will never fail. If we think about God's ways coming down from heaven as we are invited to, we can see them as, as this rain and this snow. And that rain and snow falls and it waters the earth and it, it fills up the, the rivers. And then all of that water causes the, the crops to blossom so that we have fruits and vegetables to eat and grain that we turn into to bread. We've become very used to this process, haven't we? This process of seasons changing, of, of growth. But how crazy is that process when you start to think about it? You want some food, take a seed, put it in the dirt, wait some months, trust that the rain's gonna come and cause food to come out of the ground. 
It's crazy when you think about it. When you pause, it doesn't make any sense. The whole planting and harvesting process is miraculous. It's, it's mysterious. But however strange it is, seeds always produce what they're designed to produce. And God's word, meaning God's ways and his will, it always is accomplished. He always does exactly what he intends to do. He always produces exactly what he intends to produce. No matter how many forces come against it, God always accomplishes his will. No matter how strange it may seem, he always does exactly what he intends to do. No matter the fact that that the seed has to die and be buried to produce fruit, it works. The kings of the earth and the gods that they worship are worthless, remember? Isaiah's been telling us over and over again, they have no ability to bring about their will. But our God, our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. It may not make sense to us, but he always brings forth fruit. He is always working for our good. He is always working for his glory every single time. And one day, God's ways are going to bring about a fruitfulness that will never end. The picture of verses 12 and 13 begins, I think, with the exiles returning to Jerusalem, but then it turns into something even more glorious. As the whole earth is rejoicing at the redemption of the people of God. The mountains start to to sing and the trees are clapping in time to the song because the redemption of God's people, our full adoption as sons and daughters means the redemption of all things. It means that the, the curse of Eden is over, the thorns and the briars are gone and they're replaced with towering trees, flourishing, returns to the earth as it was intended. And it has happened, it's happened in such an unexpected way. In fact, it's happened ironically through a seed, hasn't it? The seed of the woman crushes the serpent's head. A seed promised to Adam and and Eve, to Abraham and Sarah, to David. The seed is Jesus. Jesus crushes the serpent's head. How? By being crushed. Jesus who brings life through dying. Jesus who brings blessing by taking on the curse. Jesus who causes the rocks to cry out that he is the Savior. Could anyone dream of such a thing as this? Sally Lloyd-Jones says, it's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. It was never what we expected. We can hardly wrap our minds around it, but, but the Lord's ways are like the rain and the snow and seeds, meaning they're, they're mysterious and they're me- easy to misunderstand and easy to grow impatient with but the rains come to the earth and it brings forth fruit every time and one day for all time. Extended beyond the cross, we can say that we often don't fully understand God's ways. Why does God do things the way that he does? This past year and a half has been filled with lots of why questions. Why is God doing what he's doing? Some of them are broader in the world. Some of them are just in our individual lives. And they've been going on even when pandemics aren't happening. Why, why is God doing things the way that he does them? And we're reminded here that those why questions in some ways are just the natural result of serving a God whose ways are higher than ours. Those questions aren't going to leave because God's ways are higher than the heavens which means that we don't have to understand why God is doing what he is doing if we understand who he is. If we know who he is, then 
in some ways, that answers the why questions. We know that he is a God who always accomplishes his purposes, no matter how high they might seem. We know that his word never fails. He's always going to do exactly what he intends to do. We know that he's going to bring fruitfulness into this world fully and finally one day. And that all of this, all of this, his breathtaking ways of redemption are going to make a name for himself that will stand as an everlasting sign to his wisdom, his sovereignty, and his goodness. And so here we come to the Lord's Supper, which is another sign, a continual sign to all of that, to what God has done in Christ, a sign that God has sent his son to accomplish his ways and bring us life through his death. It's a, it's a foretaste of the final marriage supper of the lamb that is coming, that's foreshadowed in these verses. And it's open to all who have come to Christ in repentance and faith. This meal does not save us but it reminds us of how God saved us. And it calls us to continue to trust in him. If you've put your faith in Christ alone for salvation, and you have been baptized as a sign of that, I want to invite you to take this meal with us. We're going to take a, a moment of, of silence to reflect on God's word and to prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together. Um, and then I will pray. And then Trevor, would you help me to pass the bread and the cup? Um, just as a matter of housekeeping, the, the bread and the cup are both in one tray. Just take one of each and then we'll take them together. Um, but let's take a moment of silence and then I will pray. forgive us for so often rejecting the feast that you've laid out for us. Remind us even now that your ways are mysterious, but they are meant for our good. And they lay out for us all the blessings we could ever imagine. We pray that we would remember Christ well as we take this Lord's Supper together. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.